From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. It was like being hit by a car out of the blue. Where did he go? I don't know. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little tidbits of audio curiosities we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. Do you, do you feel like had you answered the door and they had apologized to you that that would have changed your life in some way? I think it might have, but I'll never know what they wanted to say to me because I didn't answer the door. If you're lucky, life sort of hums along. You got your average ups and downs, bumps and bruises, good days and bad, right? But every once in a blue moon, something comes along that is so unexpected, so blindsiding, so completely mystifying that you couldn't possibly see it coming, let alone prepare for it. I think this is natural. I think this is one of the stages of heartbreak. Today on ReSound, baffled. One woman at a loss to understand her best friends turned tormentors, and another bamboozled by an overnight upheaval in her marriage. It's almost a given that if you actually live through junior high school, you will be seriously traumatized at one time or another, such as the landscape of adolescent cruelty. These stories of unprovoked humiliation have been the stuff of memoir, the subject of therapy sessions, and now an episode of Jonathan Goldstein's podcast, Heavyweight. This is Julia. Julia is a journalist. And she's endlessly curious about the world around her. Once, on assignment for the New York Times, she investigated the benefits of bacteria. And as a part of her research, she didn't bathe for a month. She's done political stories, too, where she's kept after a source or a story for years. Which is what makes her reluctance to seek out the answer to a question that's been dogging her for over two decades all the more curious. I think the story begins on a Monday. I'm pretty sure it's a Monday. And I was 14 years old. This is Julia. And the question she can't stop thinking about revolves around a moment from her own life. It all began 21 years ago, in the eighth grade, at one of the fanciest all-girl schools in Montreal. I remember wearing my itchy green kilt um, you have to wear a, a uniform there. Yes. Okay. It's uh, sort of a, a, a puke green uniform with a button-down white shirt. And on Mondays, we had to wear ties. We also had bloomers. I don't think I ever understood what bloomers were. It was just sort of like um, a, a balloon with holes in the bottom. And, and were they ruffled? No. Uh, Cursed with a lifelong inability to distinguish between bloomers, culottes, pantalettes, pantaloons, drawers, and even knickerbockers, I was glad for the opportunity to finally sort it all out. (laughs) The shape of it. But that's not why we're here. So after about 15 minutes of inquiry, I was ready to move on. Okay, sorry, yes, uh, go go on. Um, As I left uh, morning assembly on Monday and uh, walked into homeroom, I looked for my desk, and uh, I stopped and looked around, and it was missing. 
my desk was gone. And uh, that was where it started. The desk had been hidden by her classmates, and that was just the beginning. Without warning, the girl she'd been friends with since third grade completely froze her out, and Julia had no clue why. To top it off, her best friend was the ringleader. The, the girl who used to be my best friend, I'm, I guess we can give her a name, let's call her Jane. I, it was just strange knowing that she and I had, had hung out at my house and all of the secrets we'd exchanged and all of the, the fun we'd had and then, you know, seeing, seeing how she was being now. It, 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 it just, it was a bit surreal, but um, yeah. Then what started happening was every time she walked into the classroom, Julia noticed that the girls would drop what they were doing and study her. If she so much as scratched her nose or sniffled, they'd furiously take notes. It seemed like everyone was collaborating on some big project that she knew nothing about. The notes were collected by Jane, who buried them in her desk. The girls kept at it, day after day, until finally... Julia reached her breaking point. She gathered up her courage and, like the good reporter she'd eventually become, decided to investigate. I eventually snuck into homeroom one day uh, during recess. It was empty, and I searched Jane's desk. And uh, there at the bottom, I found a nicely bound document with a cover page. And I picked it up and read it, and it said... 100 Reasons Why We Hate Julia. In my memory, this document I'm holding is 100 pages long, but I'm sure it was only 10. And I, I opened it, and inside I, I read about myself. Everything was something about me that they hated. Uh, I hate the way she walks. I hate the sound of her voice. I hate her face. After that, Julia started skipping school. Eventually, she told her parents what was going on and they contacted the administration, but the bullying continued. Ultimately, her parents decided that the only solution was to send her to a new school, but Julia still had a few weeks left at the old one. I became a double agent. I pretended that I was coming back the following year, and I didn't tell anyone I was changing schools because I had no friends left to tell. The school year ended, and her new life began. But because her new school was so close to the old one, Julia lived in constant fear that her old life would find her. Every day, she'd map her route to and from school, carefully avoiding the streets her old friends lived on, the coffee shops they hung out at. And for the most part, it worked. For those first few weeks at her new school, she managed to hide in plain sight. She was starting to feel like things would be okay. But then, one day after school, Julia was upstairs in the den doing homework, and the doorbell rang. She went to her parents' bedroom window and looked down at the doorstep and saw standing there her former best friend, Jane, along with a few of her old classmates. 
I hit the ground as if someone was shelling the second floor windows. I was in a state of, of total panic, and um, I saw them in my mind's eye there on, on the front steps, waiting for someone to answer the door. And uh, I was just on the ground trying to breathe, and they, they rang the doorbell again. And I waited. Eventually, they left. And this is the moment that Julia has fixated on for over 20 years. Why had the girls shown up at her door? And what did they want? Maybe they'd shown up to bully her. But maybe they'd had a change of heart, realized how mean they'd been, and were there to apologize. Whatever the case, Julia was too scared to open the door and find out. And that decision to not go downstairs and face the girls who tormented her, still haunts Julia. Even listening to her talk about it all these years later, it still feels raw. I'm 35 now, and that day has become one of my only regrets. Because the memory of my weakness sometimes supersedes all of the strong things I've done since then. And it makes me feel weak. Even though you were, you were just a child? I was 14. I think it's the memory of that fear. It's still somewhere in my physiology. It, it, it makes me fearful when I think of it. I just wish I'd gone down there. I wish I'd had the guts. What do you think has stopped you up until now from just posing the question, you know, like just finding the girls and and just asking them why they were there that day? I'm afraid to find out what I did to bring on the bullying because it's very possible that I was bad. I think deep down, I don't really know what was wrong. I don't know what was wrong with me, and I don't want to know what was wrong with me. I mean, it feels like you're being really hard on yourself or being hard on this little kid, basically, you know? Like, do you look at photographs of yourself at that age? Uh, (laughs) I try not to. Well, I think you'd be surprised by, like... I mean, I have memories of being that age where I thought, like... I was at weddings and I thought I was like flirting with adult women and stuff like that. And I look at pictures of myself and I look like a Cabbage Patch doll, <laughs> you know? I, I, I think I probably looked like the Tin Man because I had a full set of braces. And then after I graduated from my braces, I immediately went to headgear-neckgear combo. I don't know if you've ever had that, but... I've only seen them on TV sitcoms. So combine that with um, my glasses. It was a sad state of affairs. As soon as she graduated high school, Julia left Montreal for good. Depending on how, you know, the outcome of that conversation, I, I might have chosen not to leave Montreal. Um, when I'm in Montreal, once a year, I, I avoid the neighborhood I grew up in, where all of this went down for the most part. And those girls are long gone. I mean, we're all grown-ass women now with careers and jobs and kids and... Here I am avoiding friends of friends on Facebook because I don't want any of those girls to know what's going on with my life. 
do you do you feel like had you answered the door and they had apologized to you that that would have changed your life in some way that it would have changed your relationship with your past and the city and these friends um i think it might have but i'll never know what they wanted to say to me because i didn't answer the door it's scary to return to the moment you've spent your whole life running from so when i gently suggest that she try to find out why they were at the door that day julia suggests that Maybe the past should just stay in the past. You know, we move on with our lives and we, you know, we move on. And um, it's another thing to open up, you know, that Pandora's box again. Even the language that you're using about fear of opening up that Pandora's box, it is so similar to the language that you used in describing, like, fear of opening that door. So what you're saying is I should really just finish the job. I think so. In spite of her initial trepidation, once Julia decided to find out why the girls came to her door that day, she was all in. Watching her take it on was impressive. Julia went back to Montreal and reached out to her former best friend, Jane, who agreed to meet with her, but said she didn't remember anything. And so, for the first time since eighth grade, Julia returned to her former school to go through the yearbook and find the names of her old classmates. And then she started searching. I reached out to probably 12 girls from, um, from my, my grade. Yeah. Um, and in my worst moments, I imagined that none of them were going to write back and it was sort of going to feel like you know, I was I was on the outside of the group again, you know. <laughs> and that the, the social dynamics I remembered from the eighth grade were still in play and all uh. that. But then the responses started to trickle in. Hello? 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 Yes. This is Julia. Julia logged hours and hours of interviews. School and rang my doorbell. I thought you might have been one of them. I don't think so. Do you remember anything about that? Was I there? No. Oh, boy. I, I don't remember much about high school, to be honest. I remember one time you were hiding in a bathroom stall. But just like Jane, not a single person said they could remember showing up at her door that day. Yeah. Well, I honestly don't remember doing that. I don't. I don't. I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't remember anything. I just... Don't remember it. I promise you, I have no recollection of this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But what each of them did remember was their own pain. There'd been a lot of bullying that year, and no one felt safe. Julia heard about one girl who'd found her desk filled with meticulously cut out images from porn magazines. Another girl remembered someone spreading rumors that she had AIDS. I hated that place, said one. It's all a big fog of chaos, said another. A dark cloud over the class. You never knew who you could trust. We were awful, awful little girls. The more Julia heard about it, it started to sound like a Stephen King novel, and not one of those cutesy ones about clowns or talking cars. In almost every conversation, one name kept coming up as the person who had it the worst. Even Julia acknowledged it. The name was Sarah Taba. Sarah had the misfortune of being the only eighth grader who was slightly overweight, and as such, 
she was always kept at a distance. In high school, I was also someone who existed on the margins, so I understand how oftentimes kids like me, kids like Sarah Taba, become the eyes and ears of the school, fidgety, uncomfortable witnesses, forced to watch from the wings. I'm reminded of this all the time with the friends I went to high school with, who were more popular than me. Remember the time Robert Siolik wore a three-piece suit to school, I ask? The time Madame Robert slammed the classroom door so hard the clock fell off the wall? The day Sharon Weiner got suspended for leaving the schoolyard during recess? Of course they don't. They were living their lives. But I was on the sidelines, taking it all in, remembering. Hello? Hi, Sarah. Hi. It's been uh, a really long time. Yeah, <laughs> it has. <laughs> yes, it has. Having all these conversations made Julia think about Sarah and what she might remember. But when she asked her if she had any recollection about the day those girls showed up at her door, Sarah couldn't remember anything. The first thing I thought of when you said a group of girls rang the doorbell, I immediately thought it would be a bad experience. Like, it wasn't people coming looking for you to be like, we miss you, where are you? Yeah. Grade 8 was a bad year at that school. Either you were being bullied and picked on, or you had to turn around and become the bully. Yeah, I mean, yeah. something toxic, something dark. I think normal bullying, if there's such a thing as normal bullying, you can identify the perpetrator and the victim and the, like, but it was, it was just so pervasive. Do you remember the day that you realized that I was gone? I don't, actually, no. I remember it feeling like you were just sad all the time. I remember you being sad, too. Yeah. One thing I remember, people would call you Tubby Tabba. Doesn't surprise me, yeah. I remember a lot of stuff like that. I, I can't help but think that our grade's behavior had impacts on the staff. What do you mean? Uh, well, I actually, I, I'm assume, assuming you knew this, but maybe you didn't, but Miss McDonald killed herself the following year. Yeah. Miss McDonald was Julia's favorite teacher, and Sarah's too. Miss McDonald had gone to the school as a student and later returned to teach biology. She was the fun teacher who wore frog earrings. You think that there was something to do with what was happening in the school that caused her to, to commit suicide? I think it had a role in her, in her depression. She left right in the end of our grade eight year. Um, she, because what I knew of her, it was her school. It was her passion. It was, she was an old girl. She was there teaching. She wanted to instill this love of animals and biology in all of us. Um, and we were a bunch of brats. I remember there being a lot of associations between that pig that she had on top of her TV and her. A lot of comments about her weight. Yeah. It had an impact. 
Miss McDonald had been hospitalized over the summer, and when she came back in the fall, she was no longer the biology teacher, but a substitute. The last period of the last day she taught before she killed herself was a class called Personal and Religious Education. The students considered the class a joke. Sarah was there that day. And the grade was just running around and doing everything they weren't supposed to do in the classroom. She tried to get people to calm down and sit down and pay attention. And like, she wasn't even trying to teach us anything. I don't even know if there was any material to cover that day. And then we showed up at school Monday morning to find out that she killed herself over the weekend. Oh, my God. She was my role model. She was the person who survived the school, despite not being the stereotypical prefect or perfect girl. She was just this wonderful, round woman who (laughs) rejuvenated life. And as an overweight teenager, for me, that was like, okay, so you don't have to be perfect to achieve anything. She was my role model who the next year killed herself and like shattered all my dreams that you can go about living your life the way you're living your life in this environment and succeed, Um, which made me want to completely change my body. The only way that I was going to get through this school was to lose a bunch of weight, to gain the respect of these people that have basically disliked me since I was 11, um, and I did it. Yeah, I've, I've been really, um, over the years, I wondered about you, and then when I looked you up on Facebook, I saw pictures of you, and I clicked right by them. I thought, oh, I have the wrong person. Yeah. Because you didn't look like yourself. Right. So, I mean, you, you didn't, you just stopped eating, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, in uh, 10th grade. 10th through 11th grade and then basically destroyed myself in the process because it's an illness that I've been battling for the last 20 years. It's amazing what your childhood experiences can push you to do. Well, that, uh, that I definitely remember because that's how I ended up in the situation I am now. I'm actually talking to you from outside of a clinic for treating eating disorders. So, I'm really sorry, Sarah. Not your fault. That's the sort of sad reality of all of this. Is it's like, yeah. Please picture, you know, my nerdy-looking 14-year-old self giving you a big hug. Oh. Thanks. I actually do have to let you go because we have to have uh, lunch now. Um, But it was nice speaking to you. And do keep in touch. The conversation had left Julia feeling devastated. The scale of her own pain had been altered in the face of Sarah's. 
Later that night, I couldn't stop thinking about Julia and Sarah's conversation. And as I turned it around in my head, a theory began to form. Miss McDonald had died around the start of the school year. Wasn't it possible that those girls had shown up at Julia's door to let her know? Maybe they'd been worried about the way Julia had just disappeared from their school and feared the worst. Wasn't it possible the girls had meant good that day that they came to the door? And if so, wouldn't knowing that change the way Julia felt about the past 20 years and maybe even change the way she saw herself? So I took this last task upon myself. Hello. Hey, is this Christine? Hey, Jennifer, this is... I phoned up all the people Julia had already spoken with, and I ran my theory by them. To be honest, I would love to believe that's what their intentions were. I can't be sure about anything. But I I can't say, yeah, sure, that's it, because I don't have a memory of it. Okay, well, thank you. Bye. All right, you have a great night. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Jonathan. Bye. Okay. Okay. Okay, take it easy. Bye. Bye-bye. There was only one thing left for me to do. I, I just feel like I'm at a loss. Like this whole thing started off as me encouraging you to, to give it a try and that it might be helpful in some way. And I don't feel like I brought you any closer to knowing what happened at the door that day. And I, I just... If there's one of us who's disappointed, it certainly isn't me. I don't know whether I was emotionally equipped to open the door as a 14-year-old, but to me the important part is is that I opened the door now. I couldn't have um I couldn't have confronted that if I hadn't literally done what we decided we were going to do if I hadn't had these phone calls and asked these hard questions. Um, and I've, I've forgiven that little girl for being so frightened. I was so ashamed. I was so regretful. And I don't blame myself for being afraid then. I had every right to be. It wasn't rational. And so I think... The biggest challenge for me in all of this was to allow myself to slip back into that 14-year-old girl's skin and say, look, you know, I get it. It's okay. You know, it's okay. I'm proud of who I was then. I'm, it's been a long time since I could say that. And, and you feel like that's happened? Like that that's happened in this process? Yeah, I do. Well, that makes me feel better. Well, I'm happy to make you feel better, Jonathan. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. Um, I'm... Ding dong. Oh, is this the, the part where I rewrite history and answer the door? That's right. Ding dong. Okay, I'm answering the door. Okay. Open the door. What happened to you? 
I changed schools. And you know why. Julia was produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Chris Neary, Kalila Holt, and Wendy Dore for the Gimlet Media podcast, Heavyweight, which re-examines pivotal events in people's pasts. When we heard Julia, something about it reminded us of another relationship story that left us stumped about human nature. It was by a reporter who received an email one day that changed her life forever. I was in total shock. Everyone was caught off guard, friends and family. That story coming up after the break. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. In our listening recently, we discovered two stories in which the main characters suffer a shock that leaves them utterly baffled and a little haunted. As a longtime reporter for Marketplace, the last thing Sally Herships thought she'd be doing was making a deeply personal audio diary and putting it out into the world. But then one day, she opened an email from her husband at work, and with the click of a mouse, everything she thought she knew was called into question. Here she is with As Many Leaves. If you want to know what it's like to have an Indian wedding, just imagine a herd of gay men unleashed with giant water guns full of glitter and rhinestones. And you are the target. I remember the first night of our wedding. I was going to be presented to Adnan's family. I was plunked down backstage by myself, wrapped up in yards and yards of yellow fabric with sparkly bits, kind of like a princess mummy. The whole thing was totally foreign to me. I had no idea what was going to happen. It was like the time my high school friend Tanya's brother got married in Peru. I'm Jewish, and the wedding was in a Catholic church, all in Spanish, which I don't speak. And I somehow ended up on the receiving line, shaking hands with people, saying things in a language I didn't understand. This was just like that, except I was the one getting married, and I was nervous. Eventually, I was taken out into the hallway... It was dark, and there was light coming through a tiny slit in the doors. I could hear the announcer. We got inside, and a garland of roses and white carnations was put around my neck. I looked out into the audience. I saw Adnan's family and all the women, his cousins and aunts, in their saris. They were so beautiful. They looked like butterflies. I still think that song is so pretty. Sorry, Mr. Call. Um, call me back. I'm on my cell phone. Bye. So, okay, clearly, I cannot watch love story movies. That is not okay. <laughs> I just saw um, a trailer for what is that? Blue is the warmest color burst into tears and just had to go to the bathroom to clean up my face. So, not okay. Love stories, not okay. 
So I'm just getting home from seeing my friend and I was just thinking as I walked in the door, it's just incredibly sad to come home late at night alone. I used to walk in and Adnan would be here waiting for me and it's just so sad. It's just heartbreaking. And I know he is never going to be here again waiting for me because I changed the locks. So. He left all his stuff in the closet and all his pants and clothes, shirts. He used to wear these pants all the time. I guess he's just going to get new clothes. I don't know. <sighs> Two years ago, my husband left. Very unexpectedly. He didn't tell me why, and he cut off all contact. I was in total shock. It was like being hit by a car, out of the blue. I know what you must be thinking. There must have been signs, and I missed them. But the night before he left, we played Trivial Pursuit. Whatever was bothering him, he hid it. The next morning, my friend Hilka packed my suitcase and took me to my mom's house in New Jersey, where I sat in the backyard on a tree stump and stared at flowers with the dog. My sister tried to get me to eat, one grape at a time. My editor John called. He wanted to assign me a story, and I had to tell him, John, my husband left. And John said, where did he go? And I said, I don't know. After a couple of weeks, I started keeping an audio diary. At the time, I did it because I was in so much pain, I didn't know what else to do. I'm a journalist, and my microphone felt safe, something familiar to try to help me make sense of things. Sunday night, donuts. Donuts and I'll probably become the size of the shelf at the store that holds the donuts or maybe the refrigerator. I think this is natural. I think this is one of the stages of heartbreak. I think there's the ice cream stage, the comfort food stage, and the donut stage. But maybe, maybe they all fall under comfort food. I don't know. I skipped the ice cream stage because I am lactose intolerant, so I can't really have ice cream. So I'm just making up for that with donuts. I guess I'm just feeling sorry for myself, which I guess is normal. I'm probably going to listen to this at the end of the year, and it's just going to be nothing but tears, 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 and donuts. <laughs> I have to stop eating so many donuts. But it's been almost two months and he's gone. And now I am going to sleep. Good night. Okay, now. Wait, I want to see if this thing does it. Wait, can you see it first? No, no, I want to find this one. Billy. Billy.
See, it's not registering. Look, when I talk, it doesn't. The levels aren't showing up. Billy. Billy. Now you say it. Billy. And what does that mean? Cat. And how do you say dog? Here, listen. Cat. And here. Billy. <laughs> now you say it. Kutta. Kutta. Dog. Kutta. Kutta. <laughs> it sounds like a rap song. No, play it in Hindi, don't... Bad kitty. <laughs> okay, The first time I saw Adnan's apartment, I walked into the living room and said, what is that? In the middle of the floor was a giant plastic swimming pool. It was Uchi, his African desert tortoise. Adnan fed her strawberries and gave her special tortoise baths with a toothbrush. A few weeks later, he went to Iceland. He sent me postcards, a fictional account of an explorer lost in the ice. He seemed so nice. Okay. So, oatmeal goes in the garbage. This, by the way, is the sound of divorce. Putting peppercorns back in the kitchen cabinet after throwing out the crap that your husband left here. God, that's where the salad spinner is. All right. Um, but I'm proud of myself. I think I'm doing really, really well. Um, okay, so you know what a bad idea is? A bad idea is when you wake up in the middle of the night <laughs> and read the style section of the New York Times where the wedding announcements are. That is a bad idea. <laughs> bad, bad, bad idea. I really want to go back to sleep. But I'm really sad. I'm really, really sad. Listening back to this tape is incredibly painful. It's a reminder that I am a failure, a reject. The feeling is so bad that I've put off working on this for as long as possible. That's because the story requires me to be emotionally honest. But I don't want to be emotionally honest. I didn't want to work on this so badly that I've done almost everything else today except for this. I would point out that I even balanced my checkbook, except honestly, I really love balancing my checkbook, so that doesn't really count. Just know that I feel bad. Really, really bad. You know, I made some chicken stew. This is chicken and mushrooms and carrots and capers. Mm. Oh my God, thank you. It's going to hit the spot. Yeah. Growing up, I used to watch my Aunt Lucy make movies. She's a documentary maker, so telling personal stories in front of millions of viewers just seems like a natural thing to do. Do you also find comfort in this process? Well, I don't know that I'd call it comfort. What I find in picking up a camera and facing extreme situations is structure, purpose, meaning. And those things are comforting. So yeah, I guess the answer to your question is yes. Somehow, 
all that feels so overwhelming when I'm um, just facing life without my equipment suddenly becomes beautiful, meaningful, and part of a process like making this project means that I'm in a process of discovery and therefore there's something I'm learning here and something I can share with other people as opposed to just experiencing the raw pain of it all. I remember on one of our first dates when we were having dinner Adnan held up one of those giant foam cups with a straw for me to drink from. It was a tiny gesture, but it just seemed so nice. Later, when we were living together, I said I didn't have space to paint or draw, so he bought me a desk. I said it was too dark, so he got me a light. I don't know how or why, but he made me feel very loved. When Adnan left, he told me via email... In it, he said he wouldn't be answering phone calls or emails, and he didn't. And after waiting for weeks, I wanted an explanation. So finally, I went to his office. So I'm getting ready to go to Adnan's office. And I'm so nervous, I'm practically shaking. That could also be because I just had a lot of donuts today, but it's really scary. I'm in an elevator. I'm going up. I feel like um, I feel like my heart is like about to pop out of my chest. And recording these little memos is actually keeping me from totally losing it and going bananas. Sixth floor, seventh floor. He's on the ninth floor. Oh, God, this sucks. My friend Anne met me inside and held my hand all the way down the hallway to his desk. Recently, I almost drowned. I mean, not really, just sort of. After a long hike up a mountain, I tried to swim out to a rock on the far side of a pond. I was with friends, and I just wanted to seem normal, to fit in. But I don't really swim much, and by the time I got out to the middle, I was exhausted. I looked around, and all I could see was dark water. My arms were shaking, and my heart started pounding, and I didn't know if I could make it. And this was like that. In stories, there's supposed to be a dramatic moment, some kind of confrontation where everything becomes clear. That didn't happen here. I did see Adnan, but all he would say is, I have nothing to say. I said what I had to say. I'm pretty sure it was all the usual things you might expect. How could you do this? I'm your wife. We stood up in front of our friends and family and got married. That I deserved an explanation. Adnan agreed to give me one in a couple of weeks, but he never did. A few days later, an email from Adnan popped up. It was short, just one or two lines. Something like, The staff have been alerted, and if you visit again, they will call the police. This email does not require a response, and I will not provide one. 
This morning I woke up with a really horrible headache and I guess it's not surprising. I think my body is just saying enough, enough, enough. I want everything of his gone. I don't want to see it anymore. And I feel like I've been doing so well, but I guess at the same time, it's only been eight weeks. I thought I should record an entry in my audio diary today because I am practically drowning in self-pity this morning. I mean, it's pretty bad. I woke up with a little stomach bug and then just got my divorce papers. And uh, it's also Christmas Eve. Just as an added, added little bonus. It's like no one likes to feel sick to their stomach. And then on top of that, I'm working and it's Christmas and divorce papers and and self-pity tears. <laughs> I guess that's understandable. I don't know. Maybe I'm overreacting. I just want to go back to bed. I think this is also one of those days where it might not be such a great idea to be working alone at home <laughs> and not interacting with other human beings. So, today is January 1st, and today I am up with a hangover from like a teaspoon of vodka, and I am cleaning my apartment because I just heard from the lawyer that Adnan will get all his stuff out by sometime this month, and um, I need to get a roommate because I live in New York City and um, it's expensive <laughs> and this is an apartment that my husband and I had together so it's a lot for me to afford on my own. I really can't. Today is the day that the movers are going to come to get Adnan's stuff. Wow, that was fast. You're fast. So the movers are here. They're moving his stuff. It's happening pretty fast. Um, it was kind of upsetting, but whatever. It's getting over with. One of the saddest and most horrible parts, although they're all pretty sad and horrible, about recovering from this kind of thing isn't always the moments of high drama. Instead, it's the little things, everyday life kind of stuff. Like figuring out how to carry heavy boxes without a ton of upper body strength. It's looking around other people's living rooms and wondering, how did they get that couch in here? And then remembering that other people, they have a partner to help them with that. But I, I am on my own. And every time I had to ask for help, it was a reminder of that. And also of how not in control I was. We just went to Ikea and I got a shelf and I did it without my six foot tall husband, soon to be ex-husband with my sister, right? Yeah. Proving that, what does that prove? That we got the shelf, we can get the shelf. Turn right onto Bay Street. Okay. Well, I'm just impressed because I have to say- Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. When the movers came and took away all my furniture, which is an exaggeration, but they took away a lot of the bookcases, I was very frustrated because- Turning left? I don't know what she said. 
Well, she'll reroute us if we're wrong. We just, we just got this, and how much do you think this thing weighs? A lot. <laughs> In 400 feet, turn right onto Lorraine Street. Turn right onto Lorraine Street. No, but I'm very impressed that we got this big... Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. Turn right onto Lorraine Street. Oh yeah, so it weighs about the size of a fifth grader, but it's more difficult to lift because it's dead weight. So now we're gonna try to get this dead fifth grader, well, that's a horrible thing. Now we're gonna try to get this box into my apartment. Oh, you have to open the trunk. Okay, wish us luck, universe, because this is a big, heavy box. Let's see, it's been almost, it's, what is today? I don't even know what today's date is. Today's date is January 27th, and Don left September 18th, so September to October, October to November, November to December, December to January, so it's been four months and a week. It's like how you give a baby's age, right? You say in weeks, so that would be, let's see, four months would be 16, 17 weeks old. That's like a newborn baby. That's how I feel. I feel like a newborn baby. Did I do that math right? Um, it's 9.30. So, I'm out with my friend Stacy. Hi! Hi, it's Stacy. And we were... <laughs> and we were just talking about dating. And that it doesn't have to be horrible and scary. No! no. It's, it's, it can be really great and fun and exciting and romantic and great. So I think I'm gonna try, or at least I'm gonna try to make an online dating profile. Yes, yes, go forth, do it, yes. I am about to start making um, an online dating profile. So I'm gonna go to this website and see how this process works. Let's see, this question is easy. <laughs> I am female. Okay, well that wasn't hard. I know my birthday. So, okay, so far, 19, I have to scroll way down because I'm so old. It's 10.30 and I just got home from my first date. I lived, I didn't die. The guy was nice. I don't know if I would want to go out on another date with him. And he wasn't any real romance in the air. But I'm proud of myself. Like, I did it. I went on a date. When I listen back to this tape, there are moments I can't stand to play. I don't want to because I'm ashamed. But I'm not talking about the times I cried or ate all those donuts. Those make perfect sense to me. When Adnan left, my world was turned upside down. Basically, dating sucked. I would say it's like what soldiers with PTSD feel, but that would be wimpy and unfair to soldiers. I think my roommate puts it pretty well. I hear car horns, but mistake them for bombs. I'm like that weird dog at the shelter that's been mistreated by a past owner, and now it pees every time it sees someone in a green shirt. And I was ashamed. I didn't want anyone to know that I was that weird, mistreated dog. Yesterday was 
Wednesday, September 17th. And I'm pretty sure that's the day Adnan left a year ago. I don't think I thought I was going to die. But I don't know what the right word is. It felt like I was standing on a surfboard. Except I don't know how to surf. (laughs) I felt like I was... Everything was shaking under me. And I just lost my sense of north. Nothing felt real. I felt like I was in a dream. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. And his stuff was there. But he'd taken a suitcase. And he was gone. You know, you can just tell when someone's gone. It's like hard for me to put my finger on it. His toothbrush was still in his toothbrush cup in the bathroom. His soap was still in the soap dish in the shower. But I guess all those other little things that we don't even recognize that just make up a visual pattern of someone, it was just so clear that he was gone. There was a time once when I was mugged. I was reading a book on a Saturday morning and standing at the end of the subway platform. It was quiet and the entrance near me was locked. But suddenly I knew something was wrong. I looked up and there was a man standing too close to me and he had a gun. The year it non left, I started getting sick. At the time, I didn't know why. I would wake up in the middle of the night, my heart pounding, covered in sweat. I felt like I couldn't breathe and I was convinced I was going to die. A week or two before he left, my back went out. When he did leave, everyone was caught off guard, friends and family. The day I was mugged was beautiful, a spring morning. Even the police were shocked. And both times, my body knew before I did. It's been three years now since Adnan left, and I'm still stuck. I thought that somehow, through the magic of storytelling... By taking these fragments, little bits of my life that I'd saved like seashells and trying to glue them back together, it would somehow transform things. There's a park across the street from my house. You can see the trees from the living room couch. I even had this corny idea that if I did a drawing of a leaf every day, till I'd done as many drawings as there are leaves on a tree, I'd feel better by the time it was done. But there are a lot of leaves on a tree. And when something horrible happens, it turns out it can take a while to figure things out, even if you don't want to admit it. What's wrong with sounding sad? What's wrong with appearing weak? What's wrong with appearing vulnerable? He did a horrible thing. And it's kind of like, do you want to tell a true and powerful story to the best of your ability or do you want to look good? So now I'm going to serve apple, almonds, and cashews. Looks good. Yep. When I started recording this story, sometimes I did just want to go sit on the couch in the living room of someone else's life. But it's hard to always be an onlooker. A few weeks ago, I had to go interview a lifeguard. He said, bring your bathing suit. When I got to the ocean, I told him I was afraid. He asked me what of, and I said, everything. (laughs) Just me and two pieces of mango-colored polyester against the vast sea. He told me to turn sideways so the waves would break over me more easily, and he said, do you want me to watch you? At first, I was too embarrassed to say yes, but I finally did. So he stood there, on the shore, and watched, and I went in. 
It was still terrifying. It was not fun. But since then, I've been swimming a lot. The day I went to see my aunts, I got knocked over by a wave. I'd been at the beach that morning. I was just about to get out when I saw a big wave coming. I remembered what the lifeguard said, and I was just too tired to be afraid anymore. So I thought, I'm just going to let this wave knock me down. I'm probably going to get some water up my nose, but I'll end up back on shore. And that's exactly what happened. The wave knocked me over. I got water up my nose, but it did bring me back to shore. It was scary. It felt like the ocean would swallow me up and sweep me away. But good luck fighting the ocean, gritting your teeth and trying to white-knuckle it through against something looming and larger than you can be exhausting. I'm not a soldier. I'm more like a butterfly with a broken antenna. And I am not okay. And now I've said it, which makes this the most truthful story I've ever told, which also means it's both the most horrible and wonderful one. As Many Leaves was produced by Sally Herships for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. Why is there a king-size candy bar but no queen-size? Why is it raining in January? As a species, we seem to be most comfortable, most at ease, most able to move forward when we can answer one basic burning question for ourselves. Why? Why do we exist? Why can't we fly? Why hasn't he called? Why would this coffee shop have so much seating but no Wi-Fi? Why does my brother have depression? Why do Spanish and Italian speakers say, I want you instead of I love you? Why do I need to tell a robot I'm not a robot? But unfortunately, some itches you just can't scratch. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>